Once upon a time, there were four little rabbits. How old are you, Johnny? She asked. Sixteen. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. It For was the day. best of times. It was the worst of times. A wise old king once said, of the making of books, there is no end. How true today. Of the overabundance of writing published each year, what's worth reading? The answer is simple. Read only the best. Come join the discussion on Just the Best Literature. Well, hello again, everyone. Thanks for listening in today. With me in the studio today is my producer, Dan Arnfeld. Good afternoon, Dan. Hello. So as we move along here, uh, maybe I'm just going to drop a little bit of a promo. Um, we're, we're, we're getting through the book. We probably could get through it faster. And essentially what I want to do is I want to skip the section of the book on the Boer War because we're going to have one unique book on the Boer War. And so, so we don't need to cover that. And just for everybody out there listening, I know I talked to a few people over the weekend and they said, when is your wife coming back on the radio? And so um, we're going to finish this book pretty quickly. And then we want to get into... Margaret Mitchell's Gone with the Wind. That was one of his favorite books. So all you ladies out there, if you haven't read it, buy it now because it's a big book. <laughs> so anyway. Well, I have no comments today, and I trust all of you listeners had a wonderful Thanksgiving Day. My wife and I spent the weekend with our daughter, son-in-law, and grandchildren in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. And I grew up in Pennsylvania, and... It, the weather was just absolutely beautiful. The trees were beautiful. I got homesick. And then it's time to get back to work. Anyway, but uh, then on Sunday, we went to the Mid-Atlantic Mid Oroctus. Now, that might sound like a really weird word to you. But if you're Irish and you're really into being Irish, it's not so weird. Now, an Oroctus is essentially an Irish dance competition. And so, so, but the tradition hails from Dublin. Now, in Dublin, it's handled a lot differently. And so, in Dublin, it is held by Gaelic-speaking people to celebrate, exhibit, and encourage the use of Gaelic language traditions, including an Irish dance competition. So, so in America, American uh, Irish, I mean, I... According to all of the uh, DNA tests I've done, I'm like 90% Irish. <laughs> There's a little bit of Scot-Irish in there. And uh, so so I know when I see an Irish person, I can tell. You know, so, but anyway, two of our grandchildren were competing. And of course, we believe they did a great job. And uh, we just really congratulated them on that. Now, um the uh, in, in America, the Oroctus is is really it's very important to to uh, Irish dancers and the competition. There's another Oroctus this coming weekend in Dallas. I have more grandchildren in it, so I guess I'll be going to another Oroctus and I'll get my my green blood going again with the rest of the Irish. So so anyway, it was really a lot of fun. Now on our last program, I told you we would finish a small section at the end of chapter nine and get into chapter 10 titled The Malacan Field Force. But we may have to wait one more podcast to get to chapter 10. 
And the reason why I'm saying that is I, when I got preparing this program, the little section at the end of chapter nine isn't so little. And so I think it's actually very, uh, very important. Um, it's, uh, it, it, uh, tells us a lot about Winston, uh, Churchill and, um, you know, it's, uh, it's really interesting. So let's start the program today at the bottom of page 118. And this is really funny. I mean, it, it, if you go back to what we were talking about before, he's talking about being educated at Bangalore, and he studied for hours and hours, five hours a day. He really was into, uh, he even started studying about religion, and he really was studied that, and he, he uh really did develop an understanding of religion and he realizes that there is this great god in heaven that protected him all the time and so so he knew he knew that what he was being taught by the ministers locally they were not teaching really the truth and so so uh uh in some ways i think it's really good to, to read this chapter. I think we've, we've gotten through enough of it. Then when you get to the bottom of page 118, it is interesting, and, and I forgot this, um, and I've I read this book. I taught this to college sophomores. I mean, I've read this book probably more than two or three times. And so he's talking about all this education he's had and, and, and you know, how he learned to, to uh, think and, and learn like the, the college kids that never came into the army. But then at the end of this chapter, he says, and, and he's, he's in India, he says, our first incursion into the Indian polo world was dramatic. So even though he had all this time for education, he was not going to give up time for polo. <laughs> I think it's a really, it's, it's really good. There's, there's a lot here. And what I want all of you out there to think about is use your imagination as you're reading this because it really is about the British Empire. And the British Empire really did help the whole world. It was there. And, of course, uh, some of you probably know that that, uh, those of us here at JBL, that we're members of the Philadelphia Church of God, and we know that Jesus Christ is going to come back to this earth. It's so sick right now. Everything's sick on this planet. And he's going to reestablish the kingdom of God on this earth. And it's going to be, well, the kingdom of God empire. And it's there to help everybody in the world. But there's also going to be culture. And there's going to be music. And there's going to be dancing. And there'll be correct sports. And so, so this is coming. So he wrote, he wrote at the bottom of this page, he said, Our first incursion into the Indian polo world was dramatic. Within six weeks of our landing, the tournament for the uh, Golconda Cup was played in Hyderabad, the capital of the Nizam's dominions and the neighboring British garrison. So a Nizam, and you have to understand, when you're reading this, don't just pass over that word. Look it up. I had to look it up. But a Nizam is it's the title of the hereditary ruler of Hyderabad, and it's really a Turkish kingdom. And so, so if you look at, here they are in India, they're really trying to help people in India, and the, the, uh, um, the Arabs are there as well, and they're trying to help the people. 
and and of course the, the nism is from, from he's from turkey and so so you can just get a feeling of what this must have looked like if you were in india at this time and it really is it really is kind of i i think stirring it says the capital of nism's dominions in a neighboring british garrison 5 miles away in the cantonment of secunderabad maintained between them six or seven polo teams among these were the 19th Hussars, whom we had just relieved in Bangalore. There was ill-feeling between the men of the 4th and the 19th Hussars. Remember that. He, he was a Hussar. And there was this ill-feeling towards those men of the 4th Hussars. He said, Arising out of an unfavorable remark alleged to have made by some private soldier 30 years before about the state of the 4th Hussars barracks when the 19th had taken over from them on some occasions. So so here's Winston Churchill saying, come on, this happened 30 years ago. Don't pick on us, the fourth Hussar. And, uh, you know, he said, we didn't do that. We didn't destroy the barracks or let, let filth in the barracks. And he goes on to say, although not a single soul remained of those involved in the previous dispute, the sergeants and soldiers were found fully informed about it and as angry as if it had only taken place the month before. So so if you think about this, people, isn't that human nature, raw human nature? They're holding on to a grudge 30 years old. <laughs> Probably all the other Hussars are dead. And, uh, you know, it's just, uh, I really believe that he, uh, Winston um, Churchill put this in there because he's dealing with human nature. He's He's analyzing. He's analyzing people all the time. He says, These differences did not, however, extend to the commission ranks, and we were most hospitably entertained by the officer's mess. So, so what he's saying is, well, I'm, you know, I'm the upper class of the, the uh, Hussars, so you know, we were accepted. He says, These differences did not, however, extend to the commission ranks, and we were most hospitably entertained by the officer's mess. I was accommodated in the bungalow of a young captain named Chetwode, now the appointed commander-in-chief of India. So, so think about this now, not, not just hearing some, let's say, biography from him, but realize what's going on in the background. Here's, here's, he's meeting other men, and here's a young man, he's a young captain, and he's now commander-in-chief in India. And so, so you, you think about the British Empire, it, it not only included older men, but the, the younger men that were capable, they put him in line. They, they put him ahead. They, they gave them opportunity. He says, I was accommodated in the bungalow of a young captain named Chetwood, now appointed commander-in-chief in India. Apart from other garrison teams, there were two formidable Indian rivals, the Vicar al-Amra, or Prime Minister's team, and the representatives of the famous Golgonda Brigade, the bodyguard of the Nizam himself. So what he's talking about here, he's talking about polo teams. He's not talking about soldiers, or well, he is, but he's really talking about all the polo teams. And so there's the prime minister's team. There's the Nizam himself, his team. They were called the Golandas, were considered in comparably the best team in South India. Many and close were the contests which they had waged with Patilia and Jodhapur, the leading native teams in northern India. So that isn't as important for you to understand, but uh, they were just other te teams in northern India. 
Immense wealth manifested in ponies was at their disposal, and they had all the horsemanship and comprehension of polo, which were in the days the common ideal of young Indian and British officers. So, so in other words, they, they did do a lot for India, and we know that Winston educated himself in India. He realized he had a flaw. But, but yet, still, the British Empire brought along with it culture. And the culture here is polo. And, you know, I, I've never been in a polo match, but I've seen them. You know, I mean, you're riding a horse and you've got a stick with a, a kind of a, I guess, a head on it. You've got to, you know, hit that ball just right to get it into the goal. So it's a lot different than American football. <laughs> you know, you've got horses. Just found out the other day that people are so upset about um, the Kansas City Chiefs that a, a, one of their... Um, I guess one of their cheerleaders rode in on a horse and everybody went nuts because it was against American Indians, you know. And this poor little kid, you know, the Kansas City Chiefs, his favorite team, he wore an Indian headdress and and they just totally slammed him, to, slam dunked him. And he had, part of his face was red, part of it was black. And uh, it really it really stirred up a lot. And uh, the family is going to take them to court and I think they should. And, uh, you know, poor, he's, he was like six or seven, and they're calling him a racist. It's just ridiculous. He says, um, uh, the, the Golankandas were considered incomparably be the best team in southern India. Many and close were the contests which they had waged with, with the, these uh, other areas in north India. He said, accompanied by the stud of ponies we had purchased complete from the Pune light horse, we sat out anxious but determined on the long journey across the Deccan. Now, again, this is something you need to look up, and, and I did this preparing for it. The Deccan Plateau is in southern India, and it is a massive piece of, of uh, land, and it's absolutely beautiful. And so, so look it up and look at a picture of it. And so, so you can, that will help you bring this all alive, the book will come alive for you. And uh, he's, he, he goes on to say, accompanied by a stud of ponies we had purchased, complete from the Pune light horse. We had talked about that before. We set out anxious but determined on the long journey across the Deccan. So you can see how important this was to them is, you know, if they're going to be in the polo match, they've got to cross this huge plateau. It's like a, it's, it's, I would say it's like a living desert if you look at it. Our host, the 19th, received us with open arms and informed us with all suitable condolences that we had the great misfortune to draw the Kolkanda con, team in the first round. So, so they're saying, okay, we're sorry for you guys because you gotta, you gotta go against the best team ever on <laughs> the first round. They were sincere when they had said what bad luck it was for us after being so little time in India to be confronted in our first match with a team that would certainly win the tournament. And so, so think about Winston Churchill. Think about how aggressive he was and how, he, you know, he, he wasn't going to just weak, weaken out. He wasn't willy-nilly. He said, I'm going to go for it. He said, in the morning, we were spectators of a review of the entire garrison. So, so think about this. This, this is like pageantry. And, you know, 
I, I do. I love the British and I love being in Britain. And I've seen a lot of pageantry in England. And it's just wonderful when you see everybody line up to see the Queen. I mean, my wife and I have been in England more than once. And one time, we still don't know how this happened. We got invited to go into Buckingham Palace. And we we couldn't believe it. You know, there was a tour that day. And I was in a pair of jeans and an old jacket. They took us right into the throne room. We got to see the throne room. And then they took us to show us all the, the, the gold finery of, you know, plates and, and knives and forks and serving plates. I was so ashamed of myself that I was in there with jeans. I mean, that's how beautiful it was. And so, so all of you out there, when, when you're reading this, don't re just read this to get through it. Read it and think about what you're seeing or what you could see. And it really is, to me, getting ready for this today, I, I was really excited just to, just to think about what this all would look like. He said, the British troops, the regular Indian troops, and the Nizam's army paraded and uh, defiled in martial pomp. So everybody, they're not on horses yet, but they're marching into the, I guess it's uh, into the polo match facility. He said they were before us, or perhaps it was before the official notabilities. At the end came a score of elephants drawing tandem fashion, a, a gigantic cannon. It was then the custom for the elephants to salute as they marched past by raising their trunks. And this they all did with exemplary precision. So they're using the infants, the elephants, to bring in, you know, some armaments. You know, I'm sure they're going to shoot them off, you know, during the, the ceremony. And as they come in, they stop and they, it's like they salute the, the military. And, uh, you know, to me, get that in your mind. I mean, think about all the red. I mean, you think about all the red soldiers and there's probably different colors for the for the indians and all that just just think how it would be you can imagine all the flags out there it says later on the custom was abolished because vulgar people tittered and the dignity of the elephants or their mayhouts was wounded later on still the elephants themselves were abolished and we now have clattering tractors drawing for larger and more destructive guns the civilization advances but I mourn the elephants and their salutations. And the, the, the thing is, if, if we all look at it, what I think is so good about this book is it really does give a window into our own world about how many things that I remember from my childhood, you know, in the 50s. And I remember the parades on the 4th of July. I remember parades on Memorial Day. I remember every little community, you know, every neighborhood, we, we generally had our own festival, and you could go and play games. You could get food. I remember riding this one ride called the Rockets, and, you know, you, you get inside it, and it, it the Rockets would flip that way, but they turn as they're flipping you. And so it's like, oh, man, this is amazing. It's like we could we – could, I remember one night I could see the moon as we were – I thought, wow, I'm rocketing to the moon. <laughs> so, But, but that, those things are gone. The, the world has become so really perverse in a way that, that all those things are gone. He said, in the afternoon, there was a polo match. The tournament in Hyberadad 
were a striking spectacle. Whole ground was packed with enormous masses of Indian spectators of all classes watching the game with keen and instructed attention. The tents and canopied stands were thronged with the British community and the Indian rank and fashion of the Deccan. So, so there was Indian rank. There was the, the wealthy Indians there, but there were also all the, the uh, Indians from the Deccan plateau. So I'm sure they were in different color costumes and, and uh, everything. He says, we were expected to be an easy prey, and when our lithe, darting, straight-hitting opponent scored three goals to nothing in the first few minutes, we almost shared the general opinion. And so notice he says, we almost shared the general opinion. However, without going into details, which though important, are effaced by the march of time and greater events amid roars of excitement from the assembled multitudes, we defeated the Golkandas by nine goals to three. <laughs> so, so you can see why he would add this to the chapter. I mean, this is something he lived. And, you know, here they expected to lose. You know, they were being picked on because they were just fourth hussars. And, you know, oh, we really, the, the, uh, the uh, 19th hussars, oh, we really feel sorry for you. You've got to go and play them first. And they beat the pants off them. <laughs> yeah, so, or whatever they wore. Anyway, <laughs> Uh, he said, um, on succeeding days, we made a short work of all other opponents and established the record never since broken of winning a first-class tournament within 50 days of landing in India. They won the whole tournament. So, so you can see they were, they were, uh, they were go-getters. They weren't just, you know, uh, soldiers sitting around drinking beer all day. They were out. We know what Winston did. He he was reading five hours a day to educate himself, and of course, then they they did have you know fine events where they would all get together and they would wear their dress and and the women would dress and they would dance, and I'm sure they had alcohol as well. He says the reader may imagine with what reinforcement of resolve we are applied ourselves to the supreme task that lay ahead. Several years were, however, to stand between us and its accomplishment. With the approach of the hot weather season of 1897, it became known that a proportion of officers might have what was called three months accumulated privilege leave to England. Having so newly arrived, hardly anybody wanted to go. So, so think about it. I mean, he's, he's seeing India. He's seeing the empire. It's a huge empire, and he's seeing what it's doing for, for, the, for the Indian nation. And he said, Having so newly arrived, hardly anybody wanted to go. I thought it was a pity that such good things should go a-begging, and I therefore volunteered to fill the gap. I sailed from Bombay towards the end of May in sweltering heat, rough weather, and fearful sickness. When I sat up again, we were two-thirds across the Indian Ocean, and I soon struck up an acquaintance with a tall, thin colonel, then in charge of the musket, musketry training in India, named Ian Hamilton. He pointed out to me what I had hitherto overlooked, that tension existed between Greece and Turkey. So, so here, the, the empire, the British empire, is in India trying to help the Indians, and of course, they're building an empire. I mean, we... You know, we don't have to be opposed to that because they did so many good things. 
but they're building an empire and, and they were, uh, they were growing wealthy at the same time. But so was the Indians. They were growing wealthy as well. And, it, it, but, but it, it's interesting. Winston Churchill made this statement. He said, the history of man is the history of war. And so, so they're not warring necessarily on India right now, but there's a big war between Greece and Turkey. And, and if you look at the world right now, and I, I think this book is, re- this book is really appropriate because here we have all this war going on between Hamas and, uh, the little tiny state of Judah. They call them Israelis today, but they're not Israel. They're the tribe of Judah. And Jerusalem is their center city. And, uh, you know, of course, just a few, a few weeks ago, we were there and we saw, uh, you know, we saw the, the dome, the, the iron dome work. We, we did not really know what was going on in southern, uh, Israel and northern Israel, but it was absolute horrendous what was going on. And the world still can't see it. But this, this uh, person he, he, he met there, he said there was this war between Greece and Turkey. and says, in fact, those powers were on the point of war. Being romantic, he was for the Greeks and hoped to serve with them in some capacity. And uh, I don't know if, if uh, I guess we haven't really had a chance to talk uh, on the radio since I got back, but uh, it was the, it, the Athenian government or Athens that actually provided a way for us to escape. Israel. And so we were able to buy air, air tickets to, um, to Athens. And then we, we, we were able to do it on a day when the, uh, Israeli government opened up then the, the airport again, Tel Aviv airport, because it was closed and they closed it. And of course, uh, all of our flights were canceled. But the reason they closed it is if we were flying out of there, they were going to attack it even more. So they were actually saving our lives. And then this Greek airlines, it's called Bluebird. And uh, someone made the comment that the, the Greeks that were flying these airlines were actually Cretans. And they're not, they're not afraid to fly into anything. <laughs> and so, but they did get us out and we had, uh, trip insurance and, uh, I'm a big believer in trip insurance. And if you take a big trip like that, make sure you get trip insurance. And the trip insurance reimbursed us for those tickets. So it wasn't in anything out of my pocket. So it was really good. But, but he, Winston goes on to say, in fact, those powers were on the point of war. Being romantic, he was for the Greeks and hoped to serve them within some capacity. Having been brought up a Tory, I was for the Turks. And I thought I might follow their armies as a newspaper correspondent. And so, so here, if we, if we look at the whole lifespan of Winston Churchill to this point, you know, he wanted to be in, in the soldier. He wanted to be a soldier. He wanted to be a subaltern. He wanted to be with the Huskers. He wanted this. And now, one thing I think all of us ought to understand about Winston Churchill, he now wants to remake himself, not a soldier. He wants to be a correspondent, newspaper correspondent. And of course he did become that. So, so that is something that, that even my wife and I talk about. I mean, we are, we are getting older. I can't do everything I used to be able to do. But my wife says, well, just remake yourself. 
there's all kinds of things you can still do. And so, so that's really, that's really important. So all of you out there, uh, the next program, we will get into, to, uh, chapter 10. And of course, that's titled the, the Malakan Field Force. And then, like, like I said, we want to move on. And, uh, I would like to start Margaret Mitchell's, um, Gone with the Wind because, uh, Winston Churchill loved that book so much. And we're also going to include in that section, we're going to include some of his writings on the American Civil War. And uh, he loved the American Civil War as well. And so, uh, uh, We'll just say this is all for today. Read. Uh, we're not going to probably finish much past this. Uh, we're going to start, you know, chapter ten next time, and uh, you know you can start reading ahead for that. You can buy this book. You can buy my early life at abebooks.com. I know you can get it at amazon.com, and also you might look at your local bookstore. Um, it's still a very famous book, and it's still one that people love to read. And so, until next time, keep reading. You've been listening to Just the Best Literature on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG. Streaming online at kpcg.fm and thetrumpet.com.